Hello and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 125, The Rise of Great Britain. In the summer of 1404, the French, led by Jacques de Bourbon, began to prepare military support for their new ally by sending troops to Wales. This was to include, amongst other things, various crossbowmen, lances, and men-at-arms. And effectively, this would be a cross... Uh, Breeding it would be the wrong word, but a collection of troops from various levels, um, but yet very able, very capable. Men-at-arms, of course, in the medieval terms, were some of the most dangerous troops because of their abilities, because of their armor, and because of the fact that they usually came with horses. Something of a danger for a lot of people, keeping in mind that armored uh, armor in this era is developing quite... Fast. There's an effective change in medieval planning and military strategies, which included more and more capable armor. This came about likely due to things like the crossbow, which could fire through chainmail quite easily because, of course, they're firing small bolts, which could pierce that quickly, you know, regular sort of mix and match between plate and mail armor would not be as effective against that as like, say, a bow and arrow situation where you can use shields and things to avoid that. In fact, at one point, the crossbow was considered to be a weapon of mass destruction effectively. So it was considered to be a very dangerous weapon on the field and very powerful. The longbow hasn't really come to the fore yet. It's on the brink of becoming a major weapon in warfare and especially as dangerous as it'll be during this particular war and the later wars against France. The English specifically will find the use of the longbow to be such that they will be able to inflict mass casualties in ways that weren't at the level previous. And this in and of itself will create another kind of driving point to armored warfare and how to deal with things. And you're seeing this, the 15th and 16th centuries specifically become sort of the high watermark for armor. The idea that we always have of the full-plated knight riding his steed, barely able to climb on his horse, comes mostly from this period. It doesn't come before that. Before that, you have what amounts to mostly chainmail. If you look at the Roman military, for example, they used mainly chainmail with a helmet, and then they would have a breastplate, and in some cases they didn't even use chainmail. And post the Roman era, pretty much any sort of medieval warrior, if they could afford it, which most of them couldn't, were using that same sort of mix mash of armor protection. Much like a sword was something that was uh, given to you, you know, people would inherit swords, they would have in their own way kind of a uh, a sense of history that was a little different from what we'd expect and and I'm sure people talked about their weapons as being passed down to them and how they had defended the land or led battles or whatever um, you know armor kind of had that same sort of distinction of being something that was expensive to purchase hard to come by and uh, would be something that you didn't have loads of necessarily. So a lot of, you know, basic medieval battles wouldn't be full of armor. There'd be a lot of shields for sure. There'd be a lot of pikes and there would be a number of swords. But the idea of having 
full-plated knights running around the battlefield in, as kind of like a modern-day tank isn't actually something that happens until well after this, even this period. And so you don't have that sense of that. And, you know, while we have jousting tournaments and things like that, which again will change the way uh, armor is used and how it's decorated and all that kind of stuff, you have to keep in mind that jousts are not warfare. They're effectively a sport and they are treated as such. So the way we kind of usually see knights as dressing up for a joust, which is, it, it's almost a performance art sort of situation. Yeah, people die, but I mean, comparatively, it isn't the same. Like, for example, if you went and looked at the uh, Roman Colosseum and the way things were done with gladiators, that that kit they're wearing isn't usually very good for fighting with. I mean, the idea that you would go in basically naked except for a helmet and a little, you know, uh, trident isn't terribly useful in a war. And I would argue that probably wasn't typically what people did. So with that in mind, you you sort of have to, to make adjustments for that kind of interpretation of things. And armor in this period, like I said, is getting more and more plate mail in orientation much more heavy duty, a lot because they're trying to stop the effect of bows and arrows and crossbows, which are creating havoc in the battlefield. The Welsh used their bows to heavy effect in this war already. So realistically, it's become a terror of a weapon in ways that I'm not even sure anybody at this point fully understood. And while the advent of gunpowder, which is also happening, by the way, in concert with all of this, and the development of cannon and eventually of, of hand cannons and, and what we would consider to be guns, once again will change the battlefield dramatically. Right now, if you're a peasant fighting in the war in Wales, you're probably carrying a stick with a pokey end because, honestly, a pike is more effective than a sword because it can reach longer, it's cheap, and if you break it, you just make another one. And so for a lot of the peasant army, which makes up the majority of the army, and we don't even hear you know, anything about them largely, unfortunately, because of the fact that they are peasants, um, they don't have the need for much more than that. Because when a horse tries to charge against lances, unless that horse is suicidal, it will pull up, it will pull back. It's not easy for a knight to break a line of lances. And and we've got loads of Hollywood images of these kind of things. So it, if you think about it from that perspective, that that's why when the gun comes along and basically makes it so that everybody effectively has a sword, you know, and that you can load them up with cartridges as gets invented later, um, and just fire over and over and over again, that changes the way warfare works. It changes the need for armor. Armor, as we've seen, starts to go away as we get farther and farther along in this European period. And it's not until World War I where it starts to really make a return when you know your only protection from artillery shells and things are helmets, you know, because it basically from the Napoleonic era up till World War One, there was less and less desire to wear helmets and wear massive armor. In fact, mostly it was ceremonial. But 
that's because there was a leveling point when you can fire a projectile at a rate of speed that it can pierce anything somebody's wearing. And it's only the development of modern armor with Kevlar and things like that that people start to, to go back to that sense of, ooh, I better wear something to protect myself. But in this era, as I said, this is kind of like the, the arms race era of medieval technology. Everybody's trying to get ahead, trying to figure out ways of, of developing different and more strategic and tactical weaponry that can help win battles quicker and, and stop what generally had been happening in the medieval era, which is basically you go to fight someone, you either have to fight in an open plain with everybody lined up against each other, or you have running chaos as they've had in the Welsh War, where basically, you know, one army is so much smaller, it's basically hiding in the forest and then picking them apart you know, as much as they can, or you end up having siege warfare, which has been and is a brutal, long and terrible way to conquer a city, only really to be absolutely overcome by bombings from airplanes, but at the time, or artillery for that matter, at the time it was perceived as being a real sapping of resources a lot of times you know armies that were doing sieges if they failed in their siege just sort of fell apart because the morale would you know obviously be an issue or conversely the people in the cities basically starved to death or worse uh, in those circumstances so siege warfare was seen as brutal and vicious and in some respects of certainly amongst the clergy inhumane so the development of the cannon, which would break city walls quickly, was almost seen, I wouldn't say as a mercy, but it was seen as a more effective tool for sure. And it would allow, you know, again, different people to come up with different ideas. And of course, as the cannons became successful and were seen as sort of this weapon of mass destruction in and of themselves, they would then change the way castles were built and fortifications and all that. So there, there's all of this mix and mash and, and trading off of different ideas that are coming about because there's so much warfare going on across Europe in this period of time. There is There will be basically 300 years of constant fighting amongst various factions from one end of Europe to the other, and Britain will be no exception to this. So the, effectively, Britain... England specifically, but Britain in general, has been fighting wars since the Romans left in 400 AD. There hasn't really been a break. There hasn't really been some sort of independent separation of them. So with all of that kind of wrapped up into it, and with that very long explanation, this is why when you have this description of this military coming from France, it is a big deal. Uh, and it is made up of more than just a few troops. The French are supplemented at this point by Castilian troops coming out of Northern Kingdom in Spain, Castile. Um, but not only that, they have mercenaries from Prussia. They have people from all over Western Europe who are a part of this army. It is huge. This French force, had it arrived in 1404, would likely have been welcomed by Glyndur and greatly assisted in his machinations in that period. However, according to a number of sources, Jacques decided to be 
he had slightly more pressing concerns, like wooing a French lady in Paris, which may show that he wasn't fully on board with going to Wales anyway. A chronicler from St. Denis basically called him a coward who sullied the royal name by not keeping to his commitments. Jacques' only attempt to fulfill his commitment was a poorly run landing at Dartmouth that apparently came to nothing and happened a month after he had gathered his forces. Now this is 15,000 men from Prussia to Spain, and they did little or nothing while they waited for their French leader to stop making excuses and went after anything other than what he was supposed to supposedly sent to do. In Wales during the summer and autumn, Glyndor kept up the pressure, pushing at the border forts and castles and the fortified southern towns in the west, and as well as in the east. The Welsh sacked both Kidwelly and Cardiff again, forcing the English to continually spend time trying to secure those areas to keep them busy while Glyndor formalized his alliances once again. In, for, in the beginning of 1405, not long after he signed the treaty with France, he also signed another and maybe some would argue equally as important treaty when he agreed to meet and treat with his old English allies, in this case Edmund Mortimer and Henry Percy, the Earl of Northumbria. This tripartite agreement would see the establishment of a new type of rule. Based on the old boundaries of Roman Britain, Percy was to then control northern England, basically anything north of, well, what effectively was uh, the Midlands up to the borders of Scotland. And Glyndor would then have control of Wales. But not just Wales. It would actually include areas which are now and then English lands, which, and while meanwhile, Mortimer. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals, so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code WelshHistoryPod50 at factormeals.com slash WelshHistoryPod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. 
You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Would effectively cover the South. He would be in control of everything south of, of the Midlands and the border areas to Wales out to the coast. And that would mean that with Percy controlling Northern England and Mortimer the South, Glyndor then expands the borders of what would now be Wales. And it would include things like, the way the boundaries are written up in this thing are interesting because they talk about roads, rivers, and even trees making the boundaries, including towns and cities. But if we were to look at this border and draw it from one end, basically from Mersey down to to the uh, Severn, it would be a very interesting border because now all of a sudden Wales would include Shrewsbury, Hereford, and Chester, which is three fairly significant cities in the areas around them. This would then give the Welsh not just Wales, but also fairly wealthy estates in Western England. That is an incredible advantage. It's something that would give him some financial assistance with tax bases and things which is kind of interesting that those three men agreed to that and it does make me wonder if if effectively we're looking at an alliance that would have only lasted until basically the end of the Bolingbroke rule because I, I can't see how the other two Englishmen would put up with the Welsh having that much territory I mean either that or it only lasts till the end of Glyndor's life whichever it would be I don't know but because, of course, we never get there. So, but effectively, the alliance is around the idea of eliminating Henry and getting him out. The alliance believe, is believed to have been encouraged by the French. It's, and maybe even in some cases, written by them. It likely would be as long-lasting enough to see the end of Henry IV, as I said, but would have ended likely after that. Mortimer wanting his own nephew on the throne and having been a relation of Edward III, at least his nephew was, 
actually was a closer relation to him than the Lancastrian Henry, so thus he always had a higher claim to the throne to begin with. So it always kind of stuck in the Mortimer's craws about this whole thing. As part of this alliance, which created this mutual defense pact amongst the three, they also agreed to work in concert, whether in war or at the peace table, and that created a very interesting situation where neither side was allowed to negotiate with Bolingbroke until they all agreed, and they wouldn't just go on their own, or at least that was the idea of the pact, and I'm sure that's fairly normal, but it stood out to me as being sort of interesting to see that even amongst themselves, there wasn't necessarily complete trust. They believed that under certain circumstances, this could become problematic. Interestingly enough, provisions were then made for Glyndor that he didn't have to become involved with any sort of conflict with France because, of course, they were allies, and so his alliance with France actually took precedent over the English alliances, which to me speaks to the fact that the French were definitely involved in some regard because they would have, you know, suggested to him straight up that, hey, you know, our alliance kind of matters more. Um, now, interestingly, this divided triumvirate lands, which again, if you think about the Roman idea of a triumvirate, it lasts very short periods of time and usually with everybody killing everybody else. Uh, but this divided land would then be called Great Britain, a nod to the Roman past and by extension the ancient name of the island as Praetan. In modern Welsh, the name for the island is Praedan, which of course harkens back to the ancient origins. For those who are new to the podcast and may not have listened to the earlier episodes, or for those who maybe don't remember because it's been a long time ago, Praetan was a word used by the Greek geographer Pythias, who may refer to the description of the people of Britain rather than necessarily the place, which at the time were called Praetani, or painted ones is the other reference, which in itself might refer to the paintings done in things like woad on the bodies of people, which of course we know of from Julius Caesar's explanation when he confronted the Britons in the mid-50s BC, and we have this fantastic description of these warriors standing with painted woad and, and all sorts of fun things going on. And that idea that they would have painted themselves or decorated themselves with painting is something that carried on into the name and then kind of got merged into the Roman pronunciation Britannia. So that kind of is where how we got there. So the term Great Britain or Britannia Major in Latin appears first in the writings by a Greco-Egyptian scientist Claudius Ptolemy around 147 CE or AD, depending on what you think is the proper term. In his own works, he referred to Ireland as Britannia Minor or Little Britain, which I'm sure would in no way be considered controversial in our modern parlance. Likely, the name Great Britain is being used here as part of the treaty was linked to the, shall we call it, popular fiction writer, Geoffrey Monmouth's pseudo-history of the kings of Britain, who differentiated the island as Great Britain and the area of Brittany in France as Little Britain, so building 
the medieval ideas of a link with the past and the ancient times while adopting a new name for the future, one that does not include the current King of England. The king, for his part, was not exactly sitting idle during the winter months of 1405 and had received some good news for once. Prince Henry was once again able to take the field. And at this point, I must diverge a little bit again, as I must put out a nod to the uh, Netflix film The King, which, of course, was released last year. Um, this is an interesting film. It's a very great film. It's, it's a wonderful drama. But make no mistake, it's not, uh, it's not exactly historically accurate, as you can imagine. The film makes it seem like the prince was just lounging around doing nothing while everyone else fought wars. You know, he was seen as lazy, as a bit of a skirt chaser, as a drinker specifically. And partially this comes from Shakespeare's interpretation, but has very little basis in fact as far as we're aware. And in fact, only seems to take up arms against Percy because he is protecting his younger brother. In the interpretation, he's sort of George IV from Blackadder, the lazy woman chaser who did not want to go back to war and was seemingly more concerned about his shoes and, and fun than he is about the state of the kingdom. This, of course, ignores the fact that he was seriously injured and was phys too physically hurt to actually fight in the war rather than a layabout or someone, say, suffering from PTSD. Someday we must talk about Hollywood's interpretation of history, but since Wales features so rarely in the current period, it would mostly end up being about abysmal King Arthur movie myths, and I'm sure we'll get there at some point, but let me put it this way, a lot of King Arthur movies, you may as well watch uh, Holy Grail because it's a fun movie, and at least it doesn't take itself as history, which the other ones attempt to kind of do, uh, and do badly, let's be blunt. Um, it's almost as bad as some of the Robin Hood movies, but that's a distraction for another day. So anyway, so avoiding all of that, no, Henry wasn't sitting on his hands doing nothing. He wasn't sitting there lazing about living off the taxes of the people, blah, blah, blah. In fact, Henry was ready to fight and was ready to serve his father again. He was given a regional command in the areas around the northern border of Wales by his father, a sign that his father still considered him a true commander in the, of forces in the field and a sign of respect that he had likely earned over the years. I mean, Henry V was a very young man at this point and was still very successful and largely had been one of the better commanders in the English wars against Glyndor and it will remain that way for the remainder of this war. It, so much so that it explains a lot of what would go on against France later and why he was such a formidable king. But even with all that, it also shows to me that Henry IV, although comes across as stern, tactern, and a lot of other things. The one thing he definitely does not come across as is a sentimental fool who would give a command away to a relation because it was good politics or he was sensitive to the feelings of his son. The reality of it was he was always practical over necessary political ideas, and so it shows his respect. It shows how much he didn't think the other commanders in the field had done their job 
And as much as some might describe that as nepotism, the reality of it is is that Henry V, or the soon-to-be Henry V, but Henry the Prince Henry, was very much a brilliant commander, someone who understood the tactical situation and was trusted with the role of being second in command, something that was going to become increasingly important to the Welsh War and something that his father would have to rely on as his father became incapable of carrying out the war later on. And after recovering from his injuries, the young Bolingbroke was now able to carry the fight to Glyndor. What few had realized at the time was this was the first real sign that the rebellion was in some danger. At the height of Glyndor's success, with allies around him from all sides, from building and creating what would become this sort of what seemed like at least a runaway train, the biggest problem was now back on the field for him and the storm clouds were now gathering. Keep in mind, we're only a couple of years down the road from this all coming apart at the seams. And I would argue it's led by a couple of different things. One is that the Parliament of England in the spring of 1405 started to grant Henry the ability to carry out an offensive move in Wales, something he hadn't been able to do over the last year after effectively being forced into fighting defensive wars, protecting castles and fortified towns and protecting the English population that lived in Wales, he now could carry out an offensive move, something that had gone terribly wrong most of the time, but nonetheless was something that he was capable previously to do. But the finances of England at the time were in such a mess that the Parliament started to restrict his ability to do these kind of things. So the fact that he's able to bring to bear troops to actually lead offensive calculations becomes really important. And combined with that is in the spring, you have a claim that Henry V had won, I keep calling him Henry V, but Prince Henry had won a major battle against the Welsh, something which actually there's no evidence of, there's not even a remote bit of evidence of as far as we can see. But what it does do is it builds the morale back in England and likely helps stir the lords in England to help fund this campaign. Probably the other thing driving it is the fact that two of the most powerful men in the English nobility, Mortimer and Percy, are once again on board with Glyndor, and that must have scared the English nobility, or angered them, or probably both. They were looking to take out their irritation, their upset, you know, take your pick of, of what it could be and decided to throw their lot back in with a king that, I mean, I would argue they don't love. And in doing so, it suddenly gives them a lot more strength. Now, the other thing that could have been driving that, and, and what we don't know, really, the effect of the alliance between Wales and France, did that drive some of the lords back into Henry's camp and into giving him the financial and military wherewithal to be able to carry the war on again. Because now all of a sudden we're not talking about just simply, you know, putting down a rebel. We're talking about what could be an existential threat to the very idea of England. I mean, we're talking, this is barely 300 years. And I know that's, that's a long time. And, you know, nobody in this generation remembers it. But 300 years ago, 
there was no real firm united country of England. There was a idea of it, but realistically, back when the Normans invaded, England had been divided on numbers of occasions into multiple kingdoms, and in 1066 was effectively divided between the north and the south even then. So the idea of going back to that division may have scared the absolute everything out of those lords, and they may have decided at that point, you know what, we may not like you, but you're better than the other option, and the last thing we want is to be ruled by the French. So with that in mind, they may have gone all in at this point. And like I said, this becomes important to the future of Welsh history, simply because it may have finally put an end to Henry IV's weaker grasp of the monarchy, and it may have allowed him to carry out what he needed to in order to win the war. But, of course, in 1405, much like a lot of things, really, if you think about it, whenever the, the peak of the war happens, you know, people at the time could have never imagined that this would happen. I mean, Germans living in Germany in World War II in 1942 or, for, you know, or even, let's go, December of 1941, probably didn't realize just how bad things had gotten over the year previous. And the fact that the Americans and the Russians were now fully engaged in the war would have dire consequences. And that was three years later, four years later, depending on which year you use. It, it, those kind of little moments in time may seem inconsequential at the time. It may seem unimportant. Certainly, I'm sure Owen, who's living now as the Prince of Wales and as the monarch of the area and territory, more or less in fact as well as in name, he may have looked at himself in a situation where this was all going so swimmingly well that he may not have worried. He may have thought, well, we're on the road, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, in England, things are happening that are going to create problems for him to the point where he has to go into, you know, exile once again. And the last major rebellion against English rule will come to an end. So small things, great consequences. Always a thing with history, regardless. You know, it, you're never sure when things are going to happen and how they are going to happen and what little seeming things can make such a huge difference to the overall concept of war and really of society. You know, the, the advention of the smartphone, I think most of us will agree, changed society in ways I don't think anybody dreamed up when the initial idea of this was created. And you can go back to numerous examples of this over the years of technology and various cultural changes, which threw the world into what could amount to disarray. You know, who knew that a Jewish sect coming out of Israel, or in that case, place, Judea, was suddenly going to become this massive megalith religion and in and of itself help feed another religion grow to being an equal major methalithic thing. It, it's, it, you just never know. And I mean, we know now because, hey, it's history, but at the time, I'm certain that nobody had any clue what was coming. And this is one of those moments in time where the arrival of Prince Henry to the field makes a massive difference combined with the financial support from the parliament, which had been basically uninterested in this campaign till this point. So with all that set in mind, 
Thank you for listening, everybody. I just wanted to take a brief moment and mention once again how much I appreciate the patrons who are helping me. They have been very generous over the last two years since we started this whole patron thing. And I want to reach out to them and thank them for that. They don't know how much it means to me and I'm, I would love to be able to do more to, to kind of represent that. And I think one of the things I might do is start videotaping the bonus episodes when I create them and start to put them up as a, as a video episode as well as a podcast episode. But, uh, that's something I've been thinking about because one of the things I will say coming down the line here, cer certainly within, I would say, the next month is an episode based on all of the secondary and, and primary sources that I own or use and kind of where they come from. And so that if you want to look this stuff up on your own, you want to go back and say, oh, my God, John, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, it makes it even easier. Uh, so that's kind of one of the things I, I want to do. So. In, in this case, I will probably record it as a podcast and put it out as a podcast, but do a video version and, and to kind of allow people to see. I did one a number of years ago, or I guess a year and a half ago, to kind of talk about some of the things I've been using at that point, but that has changed dramatically over the last two years. So I do want to go back and do another one of those. So I will do that and, and you'll get your opportunity to kind of hear all of this regardless. So with that said, thank you everyone who listens, who participates, who comments, who, you know, in any way supports this podcast without you guys, as I say constantly, there's no way I could do this. So I appreciate it. And you're tremendous and you're all healthy and that, you know, the current situation in the world in 2020 will be less stressful for everyone eventually here soon. So that in and of itself, thank you all for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or you can talk to me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast or on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Welsh History Pod or at Welsh History Pod, depending on your parlance. And, uh, Thank you all so much, and I hope you have a fabulous day. We'll talk to you later. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, -E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.